All right, Ephesians chapter 1 once again this morning. Ephesians chapter number 1. And I want to draw our attention this morning to verse number 7. Ephesians chapter number 1, looking together at verse number 7. Of course, we have been working our way through these verses on a verse-by-verse basis, and uh, we have uh, gone through in an exhaustive manner the first six verses, and uh, we've even covered a portion of verse number seven this past Wednesday evening when we dealt uh, with the subject of redemption. As we read together this morning, we'll be looking at one particular phrase today. Verse seven of Ephesians 1, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. It's an almost unbelievable thought to consider and think today that to be in Christ is to be forgiven of all sin, whether it's past sin, present sin, and even even more remarkably, future sin. That marvelous truth that Paul writes about here is proclaimed really in that phrase, through His blood. It is through His blood that we recognize that that forgiveness of sins has indeed taken place. Now we recognize this morning there is a distinction made between redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Nevertheless, Paul says that the forgiveness of sin is the fruit of redemption. We might even say it's the first fruit of our redemption. We say, why is that so, so important? Because the reality is, is if a sinner does not have his or her guilt removed, in other words, if that guilt is not forgiven, if that sin is not removed, then sanctification and glorification will not follow, nor can they follow. Now, modern society, we would all probably be in agreement with, would say we we really don't want to talk about uh, the things of our own guilt. Uh, We certainly don't want to talk about the wrath of God anymore. And we certainly don't want to talk about a bloody sacrifice on an old Roman cross. Uh, We don't want to deal with those kind of things. We would rather today deal with the happiness and the joy that Jesus brings and how Jesus can be our best friend in the whole world. Uh, They enjoy that kind of talk. We enjoy that kind of expression. Many people are just looking for Jesus to bring happiness during a sad time. They're just looking for Jesus to bring some kind of relief towards some kind of a pain. When in reality, that is nothing more than an incomplete and I would say a faulty gospel. I couldn't even say it's a gospel. It would be a a heretical statement to say that Jesus' main purpose in coming to this world was to make you happy or to even be your best friend in the whole world. That's not why Jesus came. The very first component of even being in God, even being in Christ, we have to be reconciled to God. And the only way to be reconciled to God is through the forgiveness of sin. Our guilt must be removed. Our sin must be forgiven. Ultimately, sin can only be covered by the death of Christ. When we sang about His crucifixion this morning, when we think about and observe the Lord's Supper together, we are thinking about something more than Jesus died to make me happy. That's not why He died. 
I would tell you that's not even one of the components of why He died. He died in order that it would reconcile us to God. He who is a sinner must be reconciled to God. We've already sung about the cross. We've sung about the nails. We've read about the crucifixion. We've we read in our call to worship about how Jesus at, at the very appointed time speaks, it is finished. He has taken upon Himself the punishment and the enduring the wrath of God. Not because He deserved it, but because we did. He's bought us with the very price required. His life and His blood. The blood is not just something symbolic. It's actually effective. The blood is not something that we just say symbolically He shed His blood. No, His blood is effectual. Now we understand how hard it is to forgive one another. Uh, we, are, we are very pride-filled, very uh, sometimes lack humility. Someone does us wrong. Someone does something to us that irritates us. We, are very, we struggle with forgiveness. If you don't, I do. Struggle mightily with forgiving someone who's wronged me. Uh, it's, even when I say I forgive, it's an amazing thing how quickly something reminds us of someone who wronged us and how quickly we're reminded of just how bad that hurt and suddenly the bitterness rises up again. Forgiveness is very, very difficult in the human realm. So we cannot begin to look at forgiveness of sins through His blood as something humanly speaking. This forgiveness that Christ is offering and this forgiveness of sins through His blood is not something that's based on human emotion. It's not based on feelings. It's based on the reality of what the price cost. The price of salvation, the price of the forgiveness of sins was the blood of Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. Jesus Christ didn't die for our sins because of feelings. It's an amazing thing that we, we treat the cross as something that Jesus was motivated by feelings. That's not what sent Jesus to the cross. It's so much more than that. Forgiveness is difficult. Forgiveness is challenging. But our forgiveness is witnessed most... Forgiveness of us is most witnessed in what Jesus did on the cross for His own. Forgiveness is not a temporary forgiveness. It's not a conditional forgiveness. It is an absolute restoration, reconciliation to God. To have my sins forgiven is to be fully reconciled to God. Not temporary, not conditional, but to be absolutely restored. When a believer reads passages like Ephesians, and they read passages like even this one verse, in whom... We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. What Paul writes about here is not something that's trying to get to our intellectual minds. What Paul's writing about here is not something that's trying to get us just to come to an emotional attachment to Jesus. I am not asking you today to be emotionally, intellectually attached to Jesus. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm not trying to play on your emotions today to say, listen, because we've sung these songs that so grip us with, with what's happening and the punishment and, and what's happening, that's not what Jesus is attempting to draw us to. As horrific as a crucifixion would be, He's not trying to draw our emotions. 
He's not trying to draw our intellects. What Paul is writing about on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to grip our hearts with the message of what it means to be completely reconciled and restored to God and to actually live today with present forgiveness of sins. You may have an entire army of people unwilling to forgive you for something you have done to them. But in Jesus Christ, there is full forgiveness of sins and full reconciliation and full restoration. You may find yourself as the only person standing in the midst of people and everybody is angry at you. But the reality is, is this present forgiveness that Paul writes about here, that forgiveness is only found through the blood, through his blood, the blood of Christ. I want to show you a couple of passages. These will not be new to many of us. It could be new to you. Don't want to assume that. But in Romans 3.25, Romans 3 is one of those passages that uh, we read often. I want to just point out verse 25. As Paul was setting out what righteousness by faith is, he makes a, a very concrete declaration about where this is found. Romans 3.25, it says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now the whom God hath set forth refers us back to verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it is in Christ Jesus through His blood that this forgiveness of sins is found. A couple chapters over in Romans chapter number 5, verse number 9. Paul continuing this theme as he does through, verse, through chapter 3, chapter 4, and most of chapter 5. In verse number 9, he says, "...much more than being now justified by His blood..." We shall be saved from wrath through Him. This blood is not just symbolic. This blood is effectual. Paul wrote in Romans 3.25, through faith in His blood. And in Romans 5.9, justified by His blood. And then Colossians chapter number 1. Let's turn over there and look at verse number 12. Colossians 1 verse number 12 Paul writing to the, the church at Colossae there. We're picking up in the middle of his writing about walking worthy of the Lord. He says in verse 12, "...giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins." who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, 
by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. So we see that Paul, when he wrote about this through his blood, this is not a new doctrine. Paul in Ephesians 1.7 is not introducing a new concept. He's not saying all the things I've told you before, I want to add this through his blood. When Paul wrote these epistles, that was a recurring theme. Through his blood. So as we go back and we expound now this verse in verse number 7, we've already given you much in the introduction and these, these will move a little bit quicker. But notice that first phrase, in whom? In whom? That whom there is Christ. Christ is the author of it. He was called to be the redeemer of his people from eternity past. This is not something that was thought of later. He was called from all of eternity. We even learned this morning during our Bible study that Christ was sent in the fullness of time in order to redeem those who were his. And by the way, Christ was the only one who had the right to come and claim anyone for himself. He was in every way fit, equipped, being 100% God and being 100% man. That's why that teaching we talked about this morning was so vitally important. Christ has obtained, obtained this redemption for you and I through His obedience, through His sufferings, through His death. And as Paul writes, through His shed blood. It is Christ's blood that was shed. It is in Christ or in Him. He is the subject. He is the author of. He is the one that makes redemption possible. Instead of our sins being imputed to our account, instead we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. It's an amazing thing that this imputation of the righteousness of Christ given to all those in which He chooses for Himself, we share in that redemption that we've learned about. But Paul says not only in whom, this Christ, he says we have. This is present tense. Now we as believers, we are looking forward to many, many things. We're looking forward to the day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and takes His bride. But presently, right now, through His blood, we have the forgiveness of sins. This is not just a future forgiveness. This is a present tense forgiveness. My sins are presently forgiven in Him. We have learned already in these passages, in these first six verses, we've learned that Paul was writing not to all men as if all people experienced this, but he was writing to those that were referred to as the elect or those that have been chosen, those who've been chosen in Christ, predestinated to the adoption of children by Him, to be accepted in the Beloved. Those same individuals are the people who've had their sins forgiven. God would never call someone unto Himself call him one of their, his children and not forgive them of their sins. They cannot be separated. A person cannot be chosen by God and yet still be unforgiven. There is the forgiveness of sins that is in play here. How do all these things come? Paul, as he writes there, he says, we have redemption through his blood. The blood of Christ was the sufficient ransom. It was the payment price. It's what redemption cost. 
What's interesting, especially as we studied this morning about the divine nature of God and the humanity, the divine nature of Christ and his human nature. Jesus Christ, by taking on that human blood, he took on the blood of the people in whom he's redeeming. Yet in that great mystery, yet without sin. But he's also referred to as the blood of an innocent person. His shedding of blood was as an innocent person. Not just a mere person, not just a mere human, but a person who is truly and fittingly and properly God. As well as man. He shed that blood. The word redemption, as we learned on Wednesday, supposes that there was some sort of a bondage or some sort of an imprisonment. Redemption is something to be paid out of or to be brought out of, to be delivered. So God's elect, God's chosen, in their normal, human, depraved nature, are in a bondage to sin. Now we don't think about this, and we don't consider it often, but sin binds you. It, it, is, it, is, it is imprisoned. It imprisons you. You think that sin is something to be enjoyed, but sin binds you. It prevents you. When we talk about sin, we can talk about the effects that it has on us and what it does towards us, certainly. But understand something, that sin is the very thing in which Jesus Christ came and died for. It's not a, the forgiveness of sins is not so we can just get out of imprisonment. Do you all understand what I'm saying? It's not just so I can get rid of these bonds. I've heard so many watered down the gospel. Don't you, don't you just want to get out of the bondage of sin? That's not the main purpose of this. Remember, the main purpose of being forgiven of sins is reconciliation to God. To be reconciled. We've turned the modern day Jesus into someone that just gives us and makes our, our lives a little bit better and a little happier and a little more calm. No, sin is a horrific thing. It's not something that we just look at and say, you know, it doesn't really matter. Yes, it matters. But notice this redemption, the purchase. Redemption implies a deliverance out of. To be redeemed is to be redeemed from iniquity. To be redeemed out of the hands of sin. More specifically, to be delivered out of the hands of Satan himself. We don't even take the influence of Satan seriously anymore in our, in our, in our society. We think Satan's just gone dormant. We think Satan's not still at work trying to drive and draw away the children of God. He's very active. If you could see the spiritual warfare that's going on, what we can't see, you would be astounded at what's going on to try to rob the souls of men and enticing with sin. We think Satan's not concerned about the world. And sometimes we, we say Satan's a defeated foe, which he is. He, he was defeated at the cross, but his work is still just as active as it's always been. 
This redemption implies more than just simply having a little bit of freedom. No, it's to be ransomed out of the hands of sin itself. And by the way, you versus Satan one-on-one without Christ, Satan is much stronger than you are. It's not even close. It's not even close. It's only through Jesus Christ. Jesus is, is the greater one. Jesus is the one and greater is He. Christ is the greater one, not you. We could not even, if hypothetically it could happen, we couldn't even stand toe-to-toe with Satan. Especially in the spiritual realm apart from Christ. To be redeemed is not only to be ransomed out of the hands of Satan, but it's also to be freed from the law. There's nothing so binding than what the law would do to you. Now the law is not a bad thing. The law was given to be a schoolmaster. It was given to teach us, to instruct us, to guide us. The the suggestion is not that the law that God gave is a bad thing. But we're in bondage to it when we believe that we can be the keepers of that law. And that we could somehow, in our goodness, which we think there's some goodness in us, we could just rise up enough goodness to keep the law. We will always be in bondage to the law because we'll never be able to keep it. But there was one who could. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. Every bit of it. He became sin for us. He did not become a sinner. He took on and endured the wrath of God for us, not because He was guilty. But maybe even more importantly, we're delivered from what the law does. The law condemns. It tells us that if you cannot keep the entirety of the law, then you are going to be separated from God for all of eternity. So today, if that was the end of the story, if I left you with that encouraging message saying, listen, here's the only way you're going to be reconciled to God is you've got to keep all of the law perfectly. You would leave with absolutely no hope today because you couldn't keep it. There's no way you can live sinless. There's no way you can even last this day, most likely this hour, without a sinful thought, a sinful something happening in our mind. That's what sin does. It permeates every aspect of our being. Every time we sin, we're reminded of the reality of what we needed through Christ. We needed the forgiveness of sins. The only way I'm getting anywhere near God is to be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son. That's why Paul makes such a strong argument here about through His blood. The blood of Christ. Paul, obviously, is not talking about his own blood. If Paul meant his blood, he would have said it, but he doesn't. He said through his blood. People will disagree with various statements, but people often say, who's who's the most righteous person in the New Testament? My answer would always be Paul. Because it seems like Paul, after he was converted, he he lived for God and he obeyed God and he preached and he wrote and he was imprisoned and he was willing to die. And we all say, all of these things that Paul has done, certainly there's got to be some element of redemption and forgiveness of sins if I model my life after Paul. Even modeling your life after Paul will not get you the forgiveness of sins. 
If you took this book and you said, I'm going to set out on a life journey. Maybe, maybe you're an unbeliever and you say, okay, I'm going to see if I can live the life of Paul and I'm going, to, I'm going to earn my way. If I live like Paul, certainly God will be pleased with me. If you did everything that Paul did in this book and you did it exactly the way he did it, you still would not have the forgiveness of sins if Christ and his forgiveness and his blood was not included. You could talk the talk. You could talk in spiritual terms. You could act very religious. But yet, you need the forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness is only coming through the, His blood. That's why Paul says, it's through His blood, not my example. Even Paul said, you can follow me as an example as I follow Christ. Why is it significant that it's through the blood of Christ? Because it's through Christ's blood, not the blood of bulls, not the blood of lambs, not the blood of goats, but it's through His blood. That same blood of Christ as a lamb without spot and without blemish, blood that contains no original or actual sin, because even if his blood would have contained a single speck of sin, it would not have been sufficient to pay the redemption price. You and I have no idea what it is to actually be without a speck of sin. Now the Bible does tell us one day we will be like him. We'll see him as he is. We will one day be without sin. I don't know what that's going to feel like because we've never experienced it. We don't know what it is to be sinless. But yet, He was. He shed His blood in His humanity as a representative of us. That blood, as I mentioned to you, was effective. It's not just symbolic. The shedding of Christ's blood is proof of His great love towards those He has redeemed. The effectiveness of His blood also shows us the greatness of His person. It shows us who He is. He's not affected by emotional things. It's probably frightening if we knew how much of even our day-to-day -day walk with God is affected by our emotions. Now, emotions can be a gift from God. I'm not, I am not doubting emotions. But emotions will not lead you properly spiritually. Truth will lead you spiritually. The Word of God leads you. Now, some emotions are wonderful. They're wonderful expressions. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Weeping with those who weep. There are times when emotion is just going to pour out. And there's nothing wrong with that. But emotions will often be the thing that gets in the way of saying, listen, there's got to be another way to be reconciled to God minus the blood. There are churches all over this country trying to figure that out. How do we present a Jesus that doesn't have to die on the cross? How do we present a Jesus that we don't have to talk about His blood? How do we present a Jesus that just came to bring people happiness and a good life example? Sadly, many of those churches are the most popular churches right now. Yeah, we're not, this is not a popularity contest. Churches that preach the sound word of God are not after popularity. We're not after even likability in its human form. 
We want to point people to Christ. We want to point them to the reality of who they are. You cannot be in Christ until you realize who you are before Christ apart from Him. You have, to, you have to remind people, you have to, have to preach the truth that sin is the very thing that separates us from God. It's not a matter of having more things under my good column as opposed to my bad column. The fact that Jesus' own blood was the effective ransom payment or the price of redemption shows us the greatness of who He is. But it also shows us that God's Wrath and justice is strict. God the Father did not tell the Son, I'm going to give you one of three options. Choose which one. The only ransom price that could be paid that was acceptable to the Father was the blood of Christ. Nowhere in that was a good works added. Nowhere was baptism added. It is through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, has been given. It's unpopular. It's unpopular to talk about the strict justice of God. Because shouldn't we just be preaching a God who loves everybody? Wouldn't that be the message that a discontented, discouraged world needs? Emotionally speaking, yes. Biblically sound, no. Biblical soundness is not proclaiming that we just, God just wants everybody to be happy. God has commanded men everywhere to repent. Without distinction to your upbringing, without distinction to where you are today, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do that to all who will hear with no intent of changing it, with no intent of twisting it to fit the audience, you are not, I am not, going to be received with a popular message preaching the truth of what the Bible declares. But it's biblically sound. The redemption of mankind, the forgiveness of sin, is brought away in a way that is entirely consistent with the holiness of God and who He is. If God the Father accepts anything less than His perfect righteousness, He ceases to be God. People say, can't we just make God a little nicer? Can't we just make God a little more palatable? When you're in Christ, when you're in God, you don't want Him to be anything else than what He is and what He declares Himself to be. You rejoice in the holiness of God. You don't dread the holiness of God. You rejoice in the fact that His righteousness is perfect. You rejoice in the fact that He's not willing to waver and change with the changing of the seasons. I know people whose doctrine changes every couple of months because it just sounds better. It sounds like there's less accountability. It sounds like there's less for me to have to be responsible for. It actually sounds like I can use God's grace as a license to still sin. Yet Paul's words to that were simply, God forbid that I would ever use the grace of God as a license to continue in sin or to even do more sin. 
So the forgiveness of this sin, redemption in itself, in its pure theological terminology, redemption is not formally forgiveness. It's not the same thing. But forgiveness is the effect of redemption. To be redeemed is to have your sins forgiven. The forgiveness of sins, as mentioned, is not only one of the fruits of redemption, it's the principal fruit of redemption. Oftentimes we get the cart before the horse and we say the, fruit, the greatest fruit of redemption is I get to go to heaven. No, the first fruit of redemption is the forgiveness of your sins. See, somehow in the way we've taken out that peace. We've made redemption simply about going to heaven instead of the reconciliation to God and the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is not, do you want to go to heaven? The gospel in its purest form is not, are you sure if you died today you'd go to heaven? That's not the pure gospel in its purest form. Now, it, is, it sparks emotion in us. It sparks emotion because I begin to think about, emotionally speaking, what would hell be like? Emotionally speaking, what would heaven be like? That's why people are desperate to write about their accounts of when they visited heaven. They say, I saw Jesus. I saw heaven. Yet the Apostle Paul said, I went up in the third heaven. He couldn't even tell if it was real or a dream. And he said, I was told I couldn't even say what I saw there. To think that we could just go and give an account of everything. Even the Apostle Paul said, I can't give an account of that. I'm not able to do it. But this part of redemption, this forgiveness of sins, the blessing of knowing my sins, past, present, and future, the actual sins, my original sin that I inherited from Adam, and my actual sins, that's key. See, we don't just need the forgiveness of our actual sins. We need the forgiveness of original sin. See, you and I fell in Adam whether we like it or not. So even if that person says, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. Matter of fact, I'm so good I can't remember the last time I sinned. They'd still be guilty of original sin. In Adam, all men fell. Remember, I mentioned this to you months ago. Even if you could live your entire life without ever committing an actual sin, you'd still be guilty before God because of original sin. That doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound fair that I'm held accountable for Adam's sin. Well, the reality is you are, and even, and even secondly, you're still going to be guilty of actual sin anyway. Because we can't live sinless. But yet the forgiveness of sins includes not just that the sin in, in Adam, but also our actual sins, past, present, and that which is to come. This is through the blood of Christ. This was true in Paul's day. This is true in our day. God has not changed, therefore salvation has not changed. There has not been one way to God years ago, and now there's a new way to God. It has always been through Jesus Christ, and if it wasn't through His in actual coming, His incarnation, it was through the shadows and the types and the pictures in the Old Testament that were all pointing to Jesus Christ so even the Old Testament saint could see that it's through the blood. Those animals were not 
Their throats were not cut and the blood was not applied upon the altar just as some kind of a ceremony. It was actually making an atonement for their sins, but it was temporary. It was only for that year. Yet in Jesus Christ, we have full atonement. Through what? Through His blood. We're not going to deal with this next, this final statement of this verse today. We'll deal with this on Wednesday, but it says, according to the riches of His grace. According to the riches of His grace. So this God of His rich, immeasurable grace has the ransom price. The ransom price is given to His Son. His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sheds His blood. That's the cost. That is grace. That God would provide the cost. We often use that acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. It, it's a great reminder. It's maybe even gotten a little bit cliched. But what was the expense? The expense was that Christ's blood was shed. God gave His only begotten Son by the riches of His grace. However much it cost to secure the redemption and the pardon of sins, God by His great mercy and by His riches of His grace has given it freely to His people. He gave it to you when you didn't even ask for it. He gave it to you when you weren't seeking after it. He gave it to you by arresting you and, and opening your eyes to the truth and making you willing to believe so that we would never have a temptation, as Ephesians 2 says, to ever boast of our works. Paul says it right there in Ephesians 2.9, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's nowhere, verse number 7 of Ephesians 2, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Imagine being given something absolutely freely without the cost of anything you can provide. We could ask... Repeatedly, God, what price can I pay for the forgiveness of my sins? You couldn't pay it. You don't have access to it. You don't have the resources. You could go and you could sit before another person and say, Father, forgive me, I've sinned. And it does absolutely nothing. No other individual can grant you the forgiveness spiritually that you need to be reconciled to God. You can't even come to me and say, Preacher, I need your forgiveness in order that I might get right with God. I can't grant you that type of forgiveness. Now, I should be able to grant you forgiveness if you've wronged me, or you should be able to grant me forgiveness if I've wronged you in the human perspective. There's no, no question about that. But spiritually speaking and reconciling you to God, I can't do that. What is Paul teaching us here that all those who are redeemed have been redeemed without money that they could without money that they could pay without any of their own righteousness without any of their own merit or worthiness and that their sins are forgiven freely through his blood why does all this take place it's for Christ's sake salvation first and foremost is not even for our sake it's for Christ's sake 
Again, we can get so caught up in the reason that God does the things He did. He did it for me. No, He did it for His own glory. Christ saves for His own glory. Christ calls people unto Himself for His own glory. You and I are the great recipients of the riches of His grace, and we get to experience His reconciliation with God. But you are not the primary purpose of it all. Christ's glory is. And every time we are acknowledged that we're brought into the family of God, we repent of our sins, we believe on Christ, we give Jesus Christ all the glory for what He's done. He's the reason why we can say, I've been adopted into the family of God. We are saved by Christ through His blood. By the very sacrifice of His death upon the cross, it was His blood that was shed. His blood was the very price of redemption that was paid. His blood is the only payment that would satisfy the Father's justice and holiness and righteousness. It is impossible for those who've been redeemed, those who've been saved, those whose sins have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ to be kept under the bonds or the imprisonment of the devil himself. If you are a child of God today, you are not under the binds and the bounds and the chains of Satan. We live and often we say things like this, Satan's just got me. Listen, you are no longer in bondage to Satan. Satan cannot stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. He cannot stand. When we say, I can't get victory over this sin, in Jesus Christ, you can get victory over every sin. We've gotten gotten afraid to even say that. In Christ, there is the possibility of getting victory over that. Not in of yourselves, but it's through the blood of Christ. Sin does not have to have a dominion over you. This blood of Christ is the thing that we remember, the thing we celebrate. We celebrate Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. We observe the Lord's Supper as believers today because we remember what He has done. There's no what did we do. We're just told to examine ourselves and to be sure we're in the faith. So in a few moments as we observe the Lord's Supper together, today will be different than we've done it in the past. But the observation is exactly the same. Don't get caught up in the distribution of how the elements are being given to you. The elements are pictures, they're representations. They're meant to be objects to remind us of Christ's broken body and to remind us of His shed blood. But more importantly, it's to remind us of what Jesus Christ has done for us. As we do every time we observe the Lord's Supper together, we observe an open communion here, which means if you are A child of God, you've been saved, you've been redeemed, you are invited to partake with us. Uh, You do not have to be a member of this local assembly. We do ask that you have been saved, that you've been baptized, these are important truths, but that you observe the Lord's Supper together with us. In a few moments, we'll have, Jerry will come and will help distribute the elements. Again, they'll be uh, delivered in one container today. So you just need to take one of these as they come through, and we'll give you a little bit more instruction as you get them. Uh, But we want to make sure that we do this properly today.
All right. So as we begin our observation of the Lord's Supper, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, number 11 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And I want to draw your attention to the familiar passage that we often turn to uh, during our time when we observe this ordinance together. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Um, some of the purpose of his writing of this particular epistle and this particular chapter was to correct some improper behavior that was taking place uh, during uh, the observation of the Lord's Supper. But we want to pick up what he says in verse 23. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged." But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, and ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. We understand that the Apostle Paul is reminding of the importance of observing the Lord's Supper together, first of all, because it was revealed by the Lord himself. <clears throat> we know how to observe the, observe the Lord's Supper because uh, we've been told to do that. But the Apostle Paul himself knew that this was a commandment that God had given. We also understand that the observation of the Lord's Supper is important because Christ himself instituted it. It is he alone that told us that he set the example. Remember, Jesus set that example during what would have been a very, very familiar Passover meal. And during that Passover meal, he lifted up that cup and he announced that this cup is the New Testament in my blood. He used it on the very same night that he was betrayed. So there is great significance to what's happening here. And thirdly, Jesus gives the command that this is to be observed until he comes. In other words, this was not something that was given to past Christian congregations or past gatherings. It was given that every and all people who identify with Christ until he comes again are to keep on observing this. We keep on observing this gathering at the table. We give thanks, the breaking of bread, and the proclaiming his death until he comes again. What are we doing when we observe the Lord's Supper together? First of all, we're proclaiming something. We're showing what is to be proclaimed. We're showing how it's to be proclaimed. And thirdly, we're showing how long it should be proclaimed. In the death, burial, and resurrection, the Lord's Supper shows and exhibits and demonstrates, represents the picture of the death of Christ. His death is the very heart of the gospel. He gave his life as a ransom 
for sinners. That's a truth we have to proclaim continually. The Lord's death should be proclaimed. It's proclaimed in the very elements. It's proclaimed in the bread. It's proclaimed in the fruit of the vine. The bread represents the flesh of Christ. The fruit of the vine or the juice represents His blood. These elements are intentionally separated. They're emblems of His suffering for us and for our sin. His broken body and His shed blood. How long do we proclaim it? It doesn't mean about how long does it take us to observe it on a month-to-month basis, but how long do we do this? We do it till He comes again. So today, I invite you that know Christ as your Savior. Uh, You have been baptized. Uh, You have examined yourself and you know that you are in the faith. I would invite you to partake today as we uh, observe the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to ask Jerry if you would come forward and help us today.